So we've been in this series for 27 weeks. Today is week number 28. And as I've said many times, this is the longest series of messages that I have ever taught on. We are now officially past the halfway point in the year, which is uh, weird for me to take more than half of a year to go through a series of messages. But we've wanted to do it because Matthew is a book that gives us a picture of Jesus as a king who is unlike any other king. And we live in a world right now where leadership is both highly important and terribly misunderstood. And so we need to spend enough time in the book of Matthew so that our hearts can be softened and reshaped for the kind of king that we claim we serve. And what we've learned so far has been both cool and also disturbing at various points in time. We have learned that Jesus is the king of all kings, but he's also the king that no one really wants. Remember, we're the kind of people who want a king who's going to take our side against our enemies. We want a king who's going to defeat our enemies and make us into winners. But Jesus, repeatedly through the book of Matthew, tells us that he's not on our side against our enemies. If anything, we're supposed to be on his side for those people. And even though we view them as enemies, Jesus views them as people worthy of love. And he will say to you, love your enemies and pray even for those who persecute you. Jesus is the king that we don't want. We want a king who's going to fight our battles and win. And Jesus is the one who says, oh, no, no, you're on my team now, and we're fighting battles for the ones who lose. We want a king who's going to give us a sense of pride, a sense of identity, a sense of we know who we are and we know who our leader is, and now he's validating who we are. We love to be proud of our identity. It's kind of a thing that we do as humans, and yet Jesus repeatedly tells us, no, no, I want you to be humble. I value those who are poor in spirit. I value those who put others above themselves. And we want a king who is going to be like the king who makes us strong. The king who makes us feel like we can conquer anything that comes our way. And yet Jesus is repeatedly the king who tells us he wants us to be weak. And he lives out a kind of weakness. In the midst of his incredible power, he also lives out a life a visible weakness. And it's so unsettling and so confusing that the question we've asked for 28 weeks now is, can you follow a king like that? Today, we reach the home stretch. We're in Matthew 26, and we're going to hit all of it today. And that only leaves us a couple chapters left. We're reaching the home stretch of the book of Matthew. We're reaching the home stretch of Jesus' earthly ministry. And so as we enter into today, we have to remind ourselves of two highly important verses that we have seen in just the previous few weeks. One from Matthew 20 and one from Matthew 16. Here's the one from Matthew 20. It says Jesus is talking to his followers and he's talking about the difference between the power structure in the world and the power structure in his disciples' future. He says, not so with you. You're not going to be like those other people. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Here in this first verse, 
verse that we're looking at today. Jesus is saying to his followers, the way things work in my kingdom is that the people that I value are the ones who value others. The people I value the most are the ones who value others the most. If you want to be great in my kingdom, you're going to be the least Because that means in your own eyes, everyone else is more valuable than you, and you're going to serve every one of their needs before your own. Jesus is like, listen, I even came to give my life. Jesus is setting up a sacrificial ethic for his kingdom. And then Matthew 16, just a few verses before that, Jesus says this. He says, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. Jesus says, you cannot be my disciple, you cannot be my follower unless you deny yourself and take up your cross. Someone I heard just this last week use this phrase as, I'm not dying on the cross, I am every moment of the day ready to die because I'm wearing the cross. And no matter who I come into contact with, no matter what situation I come into contact with, at every single moment of the day, I am ready for me to die and that other thing to win or that other person to win. And then to top it all off, Jesus says, I love losers. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. Today we're going to be talking about the difference between winners and losers. And for Jesus, winners are the ones who lose themselves. For Jesus, his winners are the ones who lose themselves. That's not the way the world works. The way our world works is a zero-sum game. You've probably heard that phrase before. It's the idea that in order for someone to win, someone else has to lose. And in order for someone to win a lot, a lot of other people have to lose. And we live in a world where we basically believe that in order for me to become rich, someone else has to become poor. In order for me to be wealthy, someone else has to have less. In order for me to be significant, someone else has to be less significant. We live in that sort of world. And Jesus says, I don't care if you live in that world or not. I don't value any of those people who are the winners in the world. For Jesus, the winners are the ones who lose themselves. So we're going to pick up in Matthew 26. We're going to read the whole chapter today, which is going to take a little bit of time. But I'm not going to spend as much time this week talking about things as I have done in the previous uh, couple of weeks. But there are 75 verses, and so we may as well get started. It says this, when Jesus had finished saying all these things, remember, he had just talked about the end times. He had just talked about what life is going to be like in the end times, and then what it's going to be like when Jesus comes back and brings judgment on the earth. So now, when Jesus has done, finished, speaking all these things about the future judgment, he says to his disciples, As you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Now, I am going to stop there for just a little bit, because you need some context. Passover is an Old Testament thing that we haven't talked about yet. Now, in the book of Matthew, we've gone a lot into the Old Testament. We've spent a lot of time reading passages in the Old Testament, but we haven't looked at any of the passages about the Passover, and that's kind of weird because the Passover was one of the most important things in the whole Jewish culture. And now Jesus is saying, there's the Passover, and it's happening this week. 
And he also said, and I'm going to be crucified. It's a weird thing that Jesus would connect those two ideas. Passover, a celebration of a liberating experience from thousands of years before, and crucifixion, a tragic experience that no one ever thought would ever happen for Jesus, other than Jesus himself. None of the other people ever thought that would happen. It was weird for Jesus to put those two things in the same context. So let me give you just a brief bit of background information about the Passover. The Passover is a meal the Jewish people celebrated, a festival that the Jewish people celebrated to commemorate the Passover night when they left Egypt. See, when they were slaves in Egypt, Moses went up to Pharaoh. He said, let my people go. You've probably seen the cartoon or the movie or one of the other movies. And so, you know, Moses says, let my people go. And the Pharaoh doesn't let him go. And then finally, the last plague, God says, okay, this is what we're going to do. I'm going to wipe out the firstborn son of every single household in Egypt and the people will be so upset with me and with you that they'll kick you out. And so God says, this is what we're going to do. I'm just going to send my, my messenger, my angel of death, wipe out all the firstborn kids, all the firstborn sons. But God says, you, my people, I will spare. And I will spare based on whether or not you demonstrate allegiance to me by doing what I ask you to do. If you do what I ask you to do, then I know you're a follower of mine, and therefore I'm just going to have that angel pass right over your house. So this is what you do. You take a lamb, a perfect lamb. has to be a perfect lamb. A year old. Kill it. Take its blood and put it on the top and the sides of your door. Put it on the top and the sides of your door. And if you do that, My angel will see the blood and will pass over your house. Now, while you're inside, you better be ready. Because the Egyptians, when they find their firstborn sons are dead, they are going to be mad and they are going to kick you out fast and you are going to leave fast. And so this is what you're going to do. You're going to take the meat from the lamb and you're not going to bother with any slow roasting, slow boiling cooking methods. You're going to stick that thing over a fire and you're just going to roast the whole thing. The whole thing. Open it up, wash it, don't even bother pulling out all the organs, just roast it over an open flame, get that thing cooked as fast as possible, and while it's cooking, you make some bread. Don't bother with any yeast. Just get some flour, oil, water, smack it together, wipe it down into some sort of like tortilla thing, cook it on up, and we're going to eat fast. God says, this is an evening of haste. This is an evening of efficiency. And so that's what you're going to do. So there are two big things for the Passover meal. There was the bread made without yeast to remember how fast they were leaving Egypt. And there was the lamb that they would eat to remember the blood that they put on the doors so the angel would pass over. The lamb was a continuing tradition in their meal, as was the unleavened bread. But the lamb didn't make the angel pass over them, it was the blood. So there were two things, the bread and the blood from the lamb. That was the Old Testament Passover. Now Jesus says the Passover is coming this week and I'm going to be crucified. It's a weird thing that Jesus would tie the Passover with the crucifixion. And Matthew just drops that phrase in and immediately changes scenes. 
What Matthew does in chapter 26 is he bounces back and forth between multiple different scenes to try to raise the dramatic tension. He's not going to give you the whole story all at once. He's going to try to lead you along because Matthew is trying to be a good storyteller here. And so Jesus gives us this one cryptic statement and then boom, we're in a different part of the city. Go ahead and keep reading. We're now at verse 2. Uh, here we go. As you, uh, excuse me, verse 3. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him, but not during the festival, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. Already, there is an interesting conflict going on here, right? Jesus just said, this is the Passover. I'm going to be crucified. And the chief priests say, we want to kill Jesus, but not during the Passover. Who's going to win? Jesus' plan or their plan? We'll just keep going and see what happens next. Not during the festival, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. They're still worried about what the people think. Anyway, move on. Verse 6. While Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper, which, by the way, is just awesome. I would love to have the name Simon the leper. Do you know why you get the name Simon the leper? It's because no one knows you're a leper. If you are a leper, you don't need it in your name. The only reason to have leper in your name is that no one can see your leprosy anymore because it's gone. He's called Simon the leper because he's been healed. He's now hosting Jesus at his house. And a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. One of the other gospels tells us that the fragrance filled the room. And you can imagine when you're trying to eat, if someone dumps a bottle of perfume on the table, that would make your meal a little weird. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Such a pungent word. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She's done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. I've talked about this passage before. It's It's an incredible passage. I love it for so many reasons, but... I don't have time to dig into the details today because we've got 75 verses to get through, but I'm going to give you just a couple things to jot down. And the first one is this. Spectators never understand worship. Here's this woman, and she's got something of incredible value, and she's bringing it to Jesus, and she's pouring it all over Jesus, and she is just so lavishly in love with Jesus that she is willing to waste such a huge exorbitant amount of money on this one momentary experience. That is an experience of worship. She says Jesus is worth more than my entire life savings. That is the definition of worship, when you think that something else is worth more than something you've got. And so Jesus is worth so much more than everything that she's got that she says, Jesus, you're worth it. And that is called worship. But the people around her don't get it. And that's because spectators never get worship. 
The people on the outside, they don't know what's going on in your heart. They don't know what God did in your life. They don't know what God is doing in your life. They have no idea what's going on, and therefore worship is always and forever a thing that we might do together, but also happens completely inside the heart of only one human being. And a spectator will never get it. The disciples looking at this woman, they're like, what is she doing? This doesn't make sense at all. But there's another thing I want you to see. And it's that worshipers embrace sacrifice. All worship is always me making a sacrifice of something I thought was valuable for the sake of something else that is more valuable. All worship is me making a sacrifice of something I think is valuable for the sake of something more valuable. And this woman knew sacrifice because she was sacrificing this entire life savings of hers in this perfume. But there's more to it than that. Did you see what Jesus said about the woman? He said, she did this to prepare me for my burial. Now, I know you have listened to every single one of my messages through the book of Matthew, right? I know you've heard every single one of them. And I would just venture a guess that some of you have heard this book refer to Jesus predicting his own death more than once. I mean, he literally just did it at the first verse of this chapter. He's been doing it for so long. Jesus has repeatedly said, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. And then in this chapter, verse 1, he says, it's Passover. I'm going to be crucified. He's now even specifying the mode of his death. I am going to be crucified. And no one believes him, but the woman does. She's heard what Jesus said. She's accepted it as truth. And she's living her life based on it. Jesus said he's going to die. I was going to use this perfume for my own burial when I was dead. But I'm going to use it now while he's still alive. Because I don't care what other people think of how much I love Jesus. I only care about what Jesus thinks about how much I love Jesus. And so she says, I'm going to just sacrifice. If my Savior is going to sacrifice, I don't know why he's doing it, but if he's going to sacrifice, I understand sacrifice. I'm going to make a sacrifice. True worshipers understand sacrifice. Oh, and there's, there's one other detail of this story that I need to mention. Matthew doesn't give us one detail. Luke doesn't give us the detail. Mark doesn't give us the detail, but John does. Matthew and John were the only two men who wrote gospels who were actually in the upper room during this, or in the, the home of Simon the leper, or in the upper room later on. And so Matthew and John both knew this. Matthew leaves out the detail, but John puts it in. I'll read it to you. It says this. But one of Jesus' disciples, Judas Iscariot, Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in. The indignance of the disciples at the woman John gives us the detail. It was really Judas. 
It was really Judas who was like, we should really give that money to the poor. In other words, woman, you really should have given that money to us. In other words, you really should have given that money to me. And Judas gives us another tiny little detail from this story. Let me keep reading in Matthew. Matthew verse 14 now. It says, uh, verse 26, excuse me, chapter 26, verse 14. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Did you ever notice that it was immediately after the situation with the woman and the perfume that Judas decides he's done with Jesus. It was immediately after the situation where the perfume money did not go into the sack that Judas held that Judas was like, I'm done with this. Jesus is talking about his death. This is the second time in the same day Jesus is talking about his death. I'm done with him. This woman thinks he's going to die. Everybody, I'm done with this Jesus character. I'm going to get some money to put in my sack and I'm running away. See, here's the thing. Selfishness leads directly to betrayal. Now, We haven't covered a lot of the verses yet, but we've covered some good foundational stuff because what we have just seen is Matthew putting Judas and the woman against each other. The woman is a winner and Judas is a loser. The woman is a winner because she has sacrificed everything and she has embraced sacrifice and worship. She is a winner because she has lost herself for the sake of Jesus. Judas is a loser because he has embraced only himself and will even betray Jesus. And now that you have a picture of a winner and a loser, we are going to read the rest of this section, and what we will find is Jesus begins to show us more about winning and losing. But we start by learning about how Jesus himself is the winner. Here we go. We're in verse 17 now. It says, "...on the first day of the festival of unleavened bread..." There was a festival of unleavened bread that went it coincided with Passover. Passover was one night. The festival lasted seven days. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, go into the city to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says, my appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. That's an interesting thing. Just walk up to some guy. We're coming to your house for Passover. It's like someone walking up to you saying, we're going over to your house for Thanksgiving this year. Just want to, and you're like, who are you? you know? So anyway, somehow this has all gotten set up in advance, or maybe it's just a miraculous thing. I don't know, but this man, uh, he, he acquiesces. He says, sure. So verse 19, so the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the 12, and while they were eating, he said, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him one after the other, Surely you don't mean me, Lord. Jesus replied, The one who's dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he'd not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. Jesus answered, You've said so. 
And at that point in time, we imagine Judas left. I mean, I think he left. After Jesus says that in front of the other disciples, I'm not exactly sure Judas would have been all that welcome. The other passages in the other Gospels indicate that Jesus' statement to Judas may have been private and that Judas snuck away and the other people didn't really know why he was sneaking away. But nonetheless, that's probably the moment when Judas leaves. And then we keep reading. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took the cup, and when he'd given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. What we have just read is one of the most important moments in the entire Bible, and I'll tell you why. Up until this moment, Jesus has said repeatedly that he's going to die. One time Jesus said he was giving his life as a ransom for many, but that's ambiguous, that's vague. Never has Jesus told the disciples why he's going to die. Never did they ask. Because, see, they always thought that whenever Jesus was ranting on about him dying, that they were, you know, these disciples, they're huddling off on the, on the other side, and they're thinking, you know what, you're going to stand up for Jesus when the time comes, right? And they're like, yeah, I'm going to stand up for Jesus when the time comes. No one's going to get Jesus, right? No one's going to get Jesus. Yeah, we're going to make sure we got swords around Jesus. we got a bodyguard going around. He's talking about people wanting to kill him. We're going to make sure that doesn't happen. If it does happen, we're just going to get out of there. But you know what? Jesus keeps talking about death, and they just no one ever asked why he was going to die because no one ever thought that death had a purpose. And this moment right here, Jesus doesn't say, I'm going to die. He says, you can have my body and you can have my blood. And he tells them why. The first thing is the bread. Jesus takes the bread and he's now saying this bread is no longer about leaving Egypt. It's now about me. It's now about Jesus. The bread no longer symbolizes a liberation moment from God to the nation of Israel in the past. The bread now symbolizes a liberation moment at this very time to the disciples around Jesus. Remember the first Passover happened? They were eating the bread before they actually got to leave Egypt. And now Jesus is giving them bread before he has actually lost his life. It's the same picture. It's the night before that this is happening. And Jesus says, here you go. This bread is no longer about the Passover. It's now about me. Now, I have to just say one quick thing. that None of the disciples, when Jesus handed them the bread, thought that the bread was literally Jesus' flesh. None of them were like, okay, so Jesus, is this like your thumb? Uh, can, you know, are, you, are you bleeding somewhere? What did you do? None of them thought that Jesus had actually cut a piece of his flesh and was giving it to them. None of them thought that. In fact, I don't think that night any of them even thought about Jesus' death. They were just confused about the whole thing. All they knew is that Jesus had said, 
this is my body, which means this is now a representation of what I'm doing and not what some thing that happened ages ago is all about. Jesus said, this is about now and it's about me. And the disciples are like, okay, but Jesus, it's just bread. No one thought that it was going to magically turn into something else when they were eating it. No one thought that it was somehow a magical thing in any sense. They just were like, Jesus, I, it's bread. You're standing right there. We can see your body. Nothing's wrong with your body. All right. And they ate. You know, that's just the way it worked. Because Jesus was saying, no, it means something different now. This whole Passover thing means something different now. Jesus was shifting the symbol. But then the cup. Jesus doesn't say anything about the lamb that they were eating. Because remember, it was never about the lamb. It was about the blood. And so Jesus picks up the cup, and he's basically saying, I am the lamb. And my blood is now bringing something. It's bringing forgiveness and it's bringing a new covenant. Covenant is the word that was used in the ancient world for a relationship between two people. And it was used in Israel to refer to the relationship that God had promised to Abraham. God said, I will be your God, you will be my people. I will bless you and you will be a blessing. God made a covenant with Abraham. And then that covenant got reaffirmed through Moses to the people of Israel. And so, um, also, in Latin, the word covenant is testament. And so as a result, we ended up with an Old Testament and a New Testament just because they mean the word covenant. But anyway, the covenant, Jesus now says, this is a new covenant made possible in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. Here's the thing. Jesus says, this cup is now a new symbol. And this new symbol is not about the animal that you slaughtered or sacrificed. This new thing is about one amount of blood for all time that will be shed by me for you before you know it. Now, none of the disciples thought that Jesus had actually leached himself a little bit of blood and poured it into that cup. None of them were, were thinking that this was actual blood. They all knew Jesus was talking about something symbolic. They just had no clue what it was. But Jesus was taking communion, what we call it. The Last Supper, the Lord's Supper. He was taking communion, the bread and the cup. And he was saying, now, this is the new Passover. This is the new Passover for a new covenant with a new sacrifice. A sacrifice that is made once for all. That's what communion is all about. And so as I said before, you are what you eat. And what you need to realize about communion especially as you're preparing your heart. We're going to be celebrating communion in just a few moments. You need to remember that if you come to communion, Jesus said, this is my body given for you. This is my blood poured out for you. If you come to communion recognizing sacrifice, if you come to communion and you eat a sacrificial Savior, then you become a sacrificial person. But if you come to communion and you eat bread and grape juice, then you get fat. Eat a bunch of bread, you just get fat. Eat a sacrifice, and you become a sacrifice. 
See, communion isn't about the magic of the thing we put in our mouth. Communion is about what we become as a result of it. What we become because we have accepted Jesus as the sacrifice for us. Jesus as the sacrificial Savior. We come to communion with the attitude that our leader is a loser because he lost his life for others. And now we have to decide whether or not we're going to follow such a leader. The rest of the chapter is littered with a bunch of contrasts between Jesus and his followers. I'm going to read them straight through and give you a couple adjectives as we go through them. Because the rest of the chapter gives us a contrast between the kind of person Jesus is as a sacrificial Savior and the kind of people the disciples are as selfish-minded individuals. Here we go. We're going to plow through it. Verse 30, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus told them, this very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Now, what these people should be thinking at this time is that Jesus has just quoted an Old Testament passage, an Old Testament messianic passage. They should be thinking, oh, wait a minute, Jesus, you're talking about that Old Testament passage in Zechariah? You're talking about that prophecy? That means you are claiming to be the Messiah? They should have talked about that. Or they should have said, wait a minute, that means that, that, means that we are fulfilling Scripture right now. They could have talked about that. Or they could have asked Jesus a weird cryptic question about, wait a minute, did you just say you're coming back to life? Did you just say you're going to rise again after you're dead? They could have asked Jesus about that one, which would have confused just about anyone. But instead, they don't ask Jesus anything about what he said. Instead, they get defensive. Check it out. It says this. Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. Oh, yeah, we're never going to disown you because losers are defensive. Losers can't accept the truth. And so they try to defend themselves all the time. They're like, oh, no, Jesus, even though you said it, even though Zechariah said it, even though Scripture says it, we don't care. We're going to defend ourselves because, you know, we have to, we have to you know, preserve our honor. We have to, you know, save face in this whole situation. Well, let's keep reading. Let's see if Jesus gives us a contrast to that. Verse 36, then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Jesus gives us a contrast. Where the disciples were defensive, Jesus is submissive. Jesus says, okay, Father, so I know your plan. We talked about your plan. But I'm having some thoughts. If there's anything you haven't told me yet, Father, about this whole plan, like, like maybe a detour, maybe an extra credit way out of this particular situation, I'd, I'd really like to know it now. But no matter what, I'm still going to walk the path you have for me. They were defensive. 
Jesus is submissive. Keep reading. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And now we get another picture of the losers the disciples were. They were unprayerful, and that made them weak. Jesus doesn't accuse them of being sleepy. He accuses them of being unprayerful. He's like, you need to be praying. You need to ask for your Father in heaven to give you the strength for you to be the people that you're supposed to be. You just told me you're going to stick with me no matter what. And now you're not even going to stay awake. You just told me that if they're coming to kill me, you're going to stand by me. And now you can't even stay awake. You are unprayerful, and that makes you weak. But look at the contrast with Jesus. Verse 42, he went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? And man, this next line gets me. Look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise Let us go. Here comes my betrayer. You see, the thing Jesus should do from my perspective is you see the crowd coming from far off because you're on the Mount of Olives. You can see him coming. You see the crowd coming from afar off. You stop praying and you start running. That's what I do. That's what I would do. You see the crowd. They got the pitchforks and their torches and whatever. And you see the crowd and they're coming for you. You turn the other direction and you run. But Jesus says, get up, guys. It's time. Let's go toward them. Jesus isn't even waiting for them to show up. See, winners are prayed up strong. There's something in that moment where Jesus is spending those those times in prayer. And now he stands up strong and tall and says to his disciples, I'm going to get to that crowd before that crowd gets to me. Come with me, guys. Verse 47, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Losers are insincere. He's like, I can't. I can't face the idea of me just walking up to Jesus, pointing at him, and saying, hey, everybody, you all know Jesus, and you all know me. I'm the guy who brought the crowd here to get Jesus. He's not, even in that moment, he's he's somehow being defensive or something. He's walking up to Jesus like, I'm going to do this other little little thing. I'm going to kiss him as if I care about him. I'm going to call him rabbi. Verse 50, Jesus replied, Do what you came for. Friend. In that moment, Jesus is so sacrificial that he loves Judas. Judas, I'm not going to stop you. I'm going to go ahead and tell you, go ahead and do it. And Judas, I'm not going to call you my enemy. 
even though you are directly responsible for getting me into the hands of these other people. I'm not even going to call you my enemy. Judas, you're my friend. And I know this is the path that we walk, and so I'm walking it. Jesus is so self-sacrificial that he, the winner, is also loving. No matter what. Man, can you look your betrayer in the eye after they have literally kissed you and called you some respectful word and you know the only reason they're there is so that someone else can stab you while they're distracting you? Can you look at that person and call them friend? Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. We know from another gospel that it was Peter who did that. (laughs) And in that moment, you realize that losers are impulsive. They don't know what to do, but they'll just do whatever comes to mind. But Jesus, the winner, says, put your sword back in its place. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my Father and He will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? But how then would the Scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? For crying out loud, Jesus has the ability to call legions of angels to Him in this moment. And He says to Peter, Peter, don't you have an idea? I have the entire host of heaven at my disposal. I have all the angels under my command. Peter, you think I need a stupid sword? Peter, you think I need you to get involved in my saving? No, 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 no. That's not the way it works. You don't save me. I save you. But I won't save myself. This is the way the Scripture says it's going to be done, and this is the way it's going to be done, because winners can be heavenly patient. They have a mindset of all of heaven and all of the scripture and all of God's plan from beginning to end and they can be patient to let God's plan carry its way through. Keep going, verse 53. In that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, am I leading a rebellion that you've come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching and you did not arrest me, but this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. Losers are fearful and run. Losers are fearful and they just run. But look what Jesus does. Verse 57, those who'd arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance, right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, this fellow said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said so, Jesus replied. Which is a very similar phrase to what Jesus said to Judas back in verse 25, if you remember. Judas said, is it I? And Jesus says, you said it. 
And the priest now says, are you the Messiah? And Jesus says, you said it. But I say to all of you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Those words right there demonstrate that Jesus has a fearlessness that no one else has. Winners, when they get to that place where Jesus is, are fearless for the truth. Jesus can tell them the actual truth. I am the Messiah, not just the Messiah here on earth. I am going to be the one that you see coming in glory on the clouds one of these days. Jesus isn't protecting himself. The truth is the truth, and he's fearless about it. And he says what needs to be said, and then look at this. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, he's spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look now, you have heard this blasphemy. What do you think? He's worthy of death, they answered. Then they spit in his face and struck him with their fists Others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? And there's a picture of a winner here with Jesus. Because Jesus is there in this moment, allowing them to do the dumb, stupid, little, tiny tortures that they're doing. Like, he's on the way to the cross, crucifixion, the worst form of death ever. And leading up to the cross, flogging. Just an absolute, incredibly torturous experience. And here these people are spitting on him and slapping him and hitting him. And you kind of think that a person in that mindset would just be like, guys, just stop it. We all know where this is going. Let's just head in the direction and get the big thing over with. But Jesus is so self-sacrificial that he's just standing there while the little meaningless tortures are going on. Winners are self-sacrificial. But here's the last picture we get in the story of a contrast between who Jesus is and truthfully who we are. Verse 69, now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard and a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said, but he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway where another servant girl saw him and and said to the people there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, surely you are one of them. Your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. You see, the problem, the problem with the earthly losers like the disciples is that they're all about self-protection. And now we come to the end of it. The thing you see in Jesus repeatedly is an attitude of sacrifice, an attitude of self-sacrifice for others. The thing you see in the other people repeatedly is an attitude of self-protection. I will do whatever it takes to protect myself, my honor, my reputation, my opportunities, my money, whatever it is. The only other person in the story who has demonstrated any kind of sacrifice is that woman at the beginning. And that's why Jesus said the story is always going to be told about her because she's the only other person around me who's getting it right. 
She understands sacrifice. She's not trying to stop the burial. She's trying to care for the burial. She's not trying to interfere with any of this. She's not trying to earn her own recognition. She's just trying to honor the sacrifice that is being made. And here it is. Real winners for Jesus are the people who lose themselves. All the other people who are concerned with self-protection, they become the losers. And in this story, you don't want to be a Peter. You don't want to be a Judas. You don't want to be any of, these, any of these other guys. In this story, you want to follow Jesus. And following Jesus means taking up your cross daily and sacrificing, being a servant to those around you. And so as we come to communion, I invite you once again to come forward to receive communion, yes, as the, the representation of Jesus' sacrificial death for you, that you could be forgiven from your sins. If you have never asked for that forgiveness before, if you have never given your life to Jesus, then today is a perfect opportunity for you to do, to do that. You come forward and you say, Jesus, I give you my life and I receive from you the new covenant, the new promised relationship that is made because Jesus is my mediator between God and me. And Jesus, I receive from you the forgiveness that is only possible through your blood. You can say that today, if in, even if it's for the first time ever in your life or if it's for the hundredth time Say that, Jesus, today I am bringing myself to you and I am receiving yourself into me. But more than that, when you receive communion today, don't just receive the symbols. Don't just receive the forgiveness. Don't just receive the covenant. I'm asking you to receive the Savior, the one who is sacrifice embodied. And as we receive communion, we say, Jesus, I want to be what I eat. Jesus, I want to be a sacrifice with you for the people around me. Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you. And his plans for you are perfect. So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.